Overlooking Phoenix from high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios. Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Brought to you by OfficerPrivacy.com, the company's officers trust with their online privacy. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to Badge Boys, everybody. Episode 136. Robin, we have obviously been doing this for quite a while, and yeah. I'm excited today for uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, and I don't want to throw him under the bus, but... My co-host, Darren Birch, is completely gone. He's not even calling in. He's doing some very important family stuff. Well, he's our out, angel on earth, man. Out of state, he is. He's, yeah. he's absolutely amazing. And um, uh, we miss him, but it's kind of fun. I get to do this uh, all by myself for the first time. And so I bought... No, I, no, 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 no. You've done it before. I have not done Yes, you before. have with the Under the Shield folks. With Chris, the officer that lost his life, remember? No, no, no I, you, you, my, you were in listen, charge that mem- day. My memory is yeah, not sh- not so good. Um, That's what a woman's for to well, remind yeah, you. Well, that yeah, well, and the best <laughs> producer in the world. Oh, uh, Want to give you. a shout out to Officer Privacy. Thank you, Lieutenant Pete James. We talk every week, and there's not enough words to describe. I just did two nights ago, just for the hell of it. And I was eleven o'clock at night. I googled my own name, and some other things. And guess what? It's, it's all gone. I mean, outside of like my website, my speaking career, uh, my Instagram, things that I want public, but everything else is gone. And I hear time and time again the testimonials. So uh, Pete and Officer Privacy doing a great job. You still can get a discount if you go to officerprivacy.com backslash BV backslash badge boys, you will get a discount. You will get a couple of extra gifts, and it is very worthwhile, especially to all you new officers out there listening right now with the craziness of social media, the regular media, doxing. There's just some really horrible stories about officers and their families getting doxed and getting terrorized. You do not want to be in that position, so take advantage of getting your information taken care of with officerprivacy.com. So my guest this week is Phoenix Police Department Assistant Chief Brian Chapman. Brian and I have been friends for, wow, 22 years. And uh, we have one of those friendships that you see the little memes that say uh, true friends um, say really bad things to each other in person, but talk really good about each other behind their backs. And that, that is us. However, today I will be saying good things to his face uh, as much as that might pain me. Um, <laughs> but Brian, uh, we, started, we were in the academy together and you know I'm big on choices, twists of fate, obviously when it comes to a lot of things that I've been through, but there was a lot of choices and timing and twists of fate that went into putting Brian in the academy with me and give us a chance to become friends. Brian, uh, in his short, uh, we graduated in January of 2000, first graduating class of 2000. Brian has gone up through the ranks, uh, 
from field training officer to night detective, which I will still argue with anybody, is the greatest job ever in the Phoenix Police Department. Sergeant, lieutenant, uh, in charge of missing persons, solved a case, one of the greatest cases Phoenix PD ever saw, handled some incredible homicide cases, some things that have been featured on TV, uh, was in charge of our academy and training, and recently got promoted to assistant chief. And one of the things that needs to be highlighted for all of you younger officers out there, anybody thinking about becoming an officer, do not dare to dream. Do not think anything is not achievable. This gentleman who's here with me today, when he first became a law enforcement officer, his first job, he doubled the size of his department. That's how small of a town he is from in the great state of Ohio, the heart of it all, where I spent the entire summer. Everybody knows, Robin, I spent the whole summer calling in, mm -hmm. right? Yep, you did. Because I was watching my son play baseball in Ohio. Do you know who I was living with that entire summer? Probably him. His parents. Oh, that's how, how cool. That's how close our families are. And it was, wow. yeah, it's incredible. And uh, I want to welcome uh, Assistant Chief Brian Chapman to the podcast. Thank you. How you doing? Great, man. Great to be here. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to join me. I didn't have to argue with you too hard about getting you in here and why you should do this. So we're just going to have a chat about law enforcement, everything you've been through. You've, you've been through it all from critical incidents to rising through the ranks. You've seen a great many changes, things that I talk about on the podcast every week. You know, when we became police officers, or I shouldn't say we, because you, you did it for longer than I did. But when I became a cop in 99, it was a great time to be a cop. And then you had a year and a half later, September 11th happened, when, which we're about to hit the 20th anniversary. And all of a sudden, first responders were very loved. And throughout the last 20 years, things have obviously cycled up and we're in a pretty big down cycle. But I want to start with uh, my favorite question that I ask everybody. And I would love for you to share why did you ever put your name on the application? Well, from a, a very young age, I mean, 15, 16, I, I just had the calling. And I think some people are just drawn to that. Um, and, you know, when, when you're younger, you always think about what you want to do when you grow up. A lot of people think about being firefighters or cops, and that, that bug never left my system. So from my high school years on, um, I knew that that was just my destiny, and I was going to fulfill it one way or the other. That's why I did it. And where did you start? So um, growing up in Ohio, I will tell you um, the importance of no for everybody listening. Um, I, uh, I, I idolize the Ohio State Highway Patrol. That's what I grew up as like the premier law enforcement agency. And when I became of age to test for that program, um, I didn't get passed. I, 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 I tested right when I did, could at 18. And, and 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you could only test two times. And I mean, I tested boom, boom. Won't wait six months, do it again, and uh, that door was permanently shut. It was crushing. 
you know, you think about where you think your life is going to go and, and how it's going to be. And then, then you have to pivot and you got to figure out what's next. It, 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 it was a, it was a roadblock of where I wanted to be, but I knew I had to um, make some other waves. So I graduated high school. I went to community college. Uh, I did a, a two-year associate's degree uh, where I got a, a police science, basically law enforcement technology degree, um, which got me my certification in the state of Ohio. And then I was always interested in finishing my degree. Uh, I attended the University of Toledo for two years. And while I was working at the University of Toledo, I had to keep my certification. And to your point, I joined uh, the Bettsville Police Department. I know nobody knows where that is. <laughs> Nobody's ever heard of Bestville, Ohio, so um, please explain. But it is, uh, it is a small town in northwest Ohio, uh, population 900 people, one stoplight, four bars. Um, I was making $5 an hour as a, as a cop and uh, going to school uh, during that time. So, uh, I mean, it is a very small town. My senior class had 19 people in the graduating class, K through 12 in one building, and people always say, is that an Amish town? No, it's not an Amish town. That's just what life is like in the Midwest. Well, to be fair, one of your graduating classmates was your twin brother. So when you say 19, yes. yeah. you, you, you had two of them uh, out of that 19, which I always think is pretty funny. Yeah. So um, uh, in, in fairness to my brother, he, um, he didn't have a calling. Like, he didn't know what he was going to do in life. So when I was testing for the State Highway Patrol, I said, hey, why don't you come take the test with me? He goes, I don't think I want to be a cop. And I said, well, what do you think you want to be? And he goes, I have, I have no idea. So we go down and take the test. I pass it, or I fail it. He passes it, of course. <laughs> and he's been with them for almost 30 years. <laughs> and wow. listen, I know, I, know, uh, uh, I know Ryan Chapman very well. He's one of the greatest human beings ever. But that is just, how funny is that story? Brian, it's Brian's calling. And he failed, and the guy who was like, I don't think I want to do this, passed, and now he's way up there and been doing it for almost 30 years. So uh, hopefully he'll listen tonight. I, I just think that's pretty amazing. So you moved on. Uh, you graduated as a Toledo Rocket, correct? That's right. Go Rockets. Uh, go Rockets. Come on. Um, and then you uh, took a job with Bowling Green Police Department. Police Department. Yep. And so... Still a small town in northwest Ohio, well, a little bigger than most, uh, but a college town. College town, um, and I went from, you know, a force of two to a force of 50. So I really, <laughs> Which was huge I really felt you. like I hit the big time. <laughs> I, was, I was living life uh, there, and it was great community, great place uh, to raise a family, very vibrant community because it's a college town, so there's always stuff going on. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's about an hour south of Toledo, right on I-75. And, it's a great town. Uh, it is a great it's town. It's a great town. Um, but I, I had done that for a couple of years, and um, I, I, I knew there was, I, I, I was going to do something else. I, I, I wanted to do big city policing. I wanted to have the opportunity to work with, in all these departments, call an air unit, call a canine, and it, that just was never going to happen in a town of 30,000 people. Well, and I want to take you back to something real quick, because something that is very important for all the law enforcement officers out there, and we're going to talk about this throughout the show today, but, uh, you know, I still teach at the academy once in a while. I teach a victimology class. I share my story. Uh, I know how incredible the training is. 
at our academy and in the big city. But the one thing that you can never prepare people for is how they're going to feel the first time they see certain things, whether it be a dead child, whether it be a mangled body in a car accident, the first time somebody points a gun at you, things like this. And you fast forward all these years later, and it's easy for people to, when they see you on the streets right now, and they see the stars on your collar, they're going to be like, wow, assistant chief with Figgs PD, that's amazing. He's probably solid as a rock, and you are. But I want you to share with the audience, when you were a very, very young man and a very young officer, you went to a critical incident where you watched up close and personal, helplessly, a woman die who had been murdered. Can you share that with us? Sure. Yeah, it was uh, the fall in, in um, northwest Ohio, which you know, is as close to heaven on earth as I think you can get because the, the weather's perfect, the leaves are changing, there's a Christmas to the air, college football's going on. Yeah. And, and when you look, talk about that in terms of a, of a university setting where Bowling Green State University was, that was when all these off-site housing complexes are having big student parties. And it, 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 it's just a great, great atmosphere. And um, I was working a midnight shift that night and um, got called to a, a 911 hang-up not far from where I was living. And we had uh, take-home cars the time so you walk out of your car walk out of your house get in your car and and you're essentially on duty and um so i was not far away i signed up for it um got into the neighborhood and um just kind of driving around not getting a whole bunch of other information and then out of nowhere this girl comes running out of the house um holding her neck um screaming help me help me and I'm, I'm looking around trying to, you know, process it because it's just not what you expect. You're kind of kind of in the mind frame of it's a 911 hang up. Maybe someone's calling about a loud, loud party. And so um, I get out of my car and I can I can see pretty quickly that she's been stabbed in the neck. And um, I'm calling for additional units. I'm calling for fire department. And it was. In between that time, I'm in the trunk getting the um, first aid kit out of my car, and I hear another girl come out of the same house that she was at, and she's been stabbed in the face. She's bleeding profusely, too. And this is small town Ohio, Jason. So and you're this, the only one there I'm right the now. Only, I'm the only one there. How old are you? 23. God, think about that, you guys. 23 years old. Okay. And so I get her down in front of the car. Uh, I'm, I'm just having her calm down because... Uh, th- I see no blood on her. I just see a very small puncture in her neck. And um, I think she's going into shock because I can see color just eliminating from her body. And I'm trying to talk to her and telling her it's going to be okay, telling her fire department's on the way. And um, it, it seemed, I think, for any of the people listening right now, when you're involved in something like that and you're dependent on paramedics to get to the scene, it, it takes forever. It it takes yeah, seconds, literally our forever. Minutes or hours. Even if you can hear sirens, mm-hmm. and it, it just seemed like it, it took forever. And so, um, they they eventually arrived. We we um, treated the the two girls, um, put the one in the ambulance, uh, took it away. She unfortunately died on the way to the hospital, um, and the other girl survived and got several stitches um, in her face. Uh, fortunately, um, the the suspect in this case. Uh, ran out the back door 
and we had a bike patrol unit and we just had a happened to have an officer in the area who was on bike and he saw him run just before he disappeared into this massive crowd of people that were having this party and and they took him into custody um and he ended up getting 25 years to life um she had been stabbed um and it, it, it nicked the carotid and so uh you know we we talked to the the coroner afterwards and you know it, it's one of those injuries that you, you can't recover from he said even if even if this happened on an operating table with everybody ready to go the she, cha- would, she would have died the chances of survival are none so share with our audience and again especially the first responders out there you are 23 years old and now you have the luxury of time you have uh, it's very true what they say. Hindsight's twenty twenty. You've gone on to get married. You have children of your own. It does it boil down to a choice as a first responder? Because after that call was over, you weren't off duty. You weren't sent home back then to, hey, Brian, you probably need a couple weeks off to process. No, you you were back at work. And the guy you were then is much different than the guy you are today. What, what advice would you give to these young officers when they see and have to go through something like that? The, the ones that, and again, I, I'm not being harsh, but it is a choice. The ones that choose to go down a really dark rabbit hole or the guys who choose to, I'm glad I was the one who was there. I did what I could and I learned from it and I'll be ready for the next one. Well, I mean, I don't think you ever get over it. It just it becomes a fabric of who you are, and it, it really, um, it, it really does forecast how you're going to be able to respond to things going forward. I mean, to your point, um, when I cleared from that scene, I, I was working a double shift that night. I was working midnight to morning, and then I was holding over till 3 p.m. the next day wow. because of staffing. And I remember clearing that scene and getting sent to a a disorderly conduct call in our downtown area. Um, where this college kid, the same age as the girl who who I just saw lose her life, he was so intoxicated he's passed out on the bench and nobody can wake him up. And, you know, I I think that's what struck me the most is, you know, this horrific, tragic situation just happened. Life goes on for everybody else. I mean, there are people that are just go about and and live their lives. And, you know, it um, it was a tough tough time because I think in this line of work, first responders, paramedics, officers, you kind of expect death will visit at some point because that's just the nature of what we do, right? We're, we're, we're falling in between those uh, lines of, of chaos and normalcy. But for, um, you, I don't think you ever quite prepared to see the life of somebody extinguished in front of you. And uh, you can no get way. accustomed to seeing dead bodies in various stages of, of decomposition or, or tragedy, but to see the light actually go out of somebody is um, haunting. It's horrible. And Nobody should have. And yeah. it, it's, um, it is something that you, you, just, you just manage it and you go forward. So I remember when you and I were in the academy and uh, – you you were very very helpful to me in ways that you probably didn't realize because I was I was the one who was even though I was 26 years old and I had a little bit of maturity I had a little bit it truly was a calling because of Mark Axon being killed I I like you had failed out of the process 
several times. And then all of a sudden, when it was a calling, I got it. We go through the academy, and you were the one, and I don't know if you remember this, we graduated on a Friday night, and I had to go to work Monday. And I called you Sunday. I remember. And I... I will never forget standing there. I don't know. I was like in my freaking shorts and t-shirt. And I was like, Brian, holy shit. This is like real. And I don't know if I can do this. There's no more red man scenarios. There's no more whistles at the end of a scenario. There's no more just knowing that pass or fail, there, there's, an, there's an end line. Now I have a badge and a gun and a tremendous amount of responsibility. And I called you and I'll never forget these words. You just, you listen to me because everybody knows who listens to my show. I'm very long winded. I have a lot to say. You listen to me rant and rave and, and have my little freak out. And you just simply said, Jason, you're 10, eight, don't worry about it. And for those of you who don't know, 10, eight just means you're in service. You're ready to go. Uh, it's a simple way of saying, it's time to go to work. And it, it was like a uh, switch turned in me. I'm like, you know what? If this guy says I'm 10-8, then I'm good to go. And so we go out, and I always knew, and I can talk to plenty of our friends in, in our academy, it's almost go back to the <laughs> the most popular kid in high school. Who's going who's gonna to be the most successful? Everybody knew when we graduated our academy class, which we graduated with, I think, 38 people. Everybody would have said to a T, uh, Brian Chapman will uh, go the farthest in his career. But you didn't come out of the academy with like a plan written down on three sheets of paper. This is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it. You let your career unfold. You, you went through the training process. You hit the streets just like I did. Um, you went through a critical incident uh, that was, I know, changed your life. We'll talk about that in a minute. But then you you did become a training officer after only a couple of years past being a trainee. Then you decided to promote. And you know that I was the guy that hadn't had it not been for my career being altered. I would have never promoted. I would have you know, become a detective and I would have just been happy doing that all these years later. But you ended up being a sergeant, missing persons. You did work on a case that was nationally profiled. It was an intense case um, with uh, the ATF involved and a lot of other people there. Then uh, you helped solve one of the craziest murders the city of Phoenix ever saw with a woman who <laughs> dismembered her husband and Brian's at the Home Depot on video finding her buying the tubs that she buried her dismembered husband in. It was just a, a crazy case and he, he helped solve that. Then you become a lieutenant working back at the academy. Then you become a commander. Now you're an assistant chief. When you sit here today and you look back at your career, do you look back and think, Jesus, how did, I, how did I get here? Or does it all make sense to you now? Well, I'll answer that. But let me go back to your conversation about how unsure you were when you graduated the academy. You know, um, and I, I remember that conversation. Um, but I also remember 
um, things that you weren't taking into account. You had tremendous life experience. You were in the military. You served for four years. You were in APS. You had already started a family. You had tremendous life experience that I think is incredibly important for anybody going into this profession. Nonetheless, um, I mean, I was a basic training lieutenant at the academy. Then I had another tour there as, as the uh, academy commander. And I will say without fail, every graduation class to some degree feels the same way. There, there's a, there's I would a, hope. There's a lack of confidence because there's a breakdown in what is happening in the academy versus what is happening in the real world. And you can train all day long, but you can never replicate real life until you get out on the street. So I, it's completely normal, and especially for people listening or interested in getting in this, in this profession, you're, just own it. That's going to happen. You're not going to be able to build that confidence until you get those reps, until you get out and you're able to solve those problems, and you're actually able to put your training into a real-world situation. So um, that's not – it's very common, I think, yeah. uh, for, for everybody, no matter what profession you're going into. Well, I have the hindsight of thinking it's healthy because you cannot come out of an academy process or a testing process, and you can't come out with – if you come out with arrogance – and cockiness and like I got this you're you're probably going to be suffering a little bit because that's just not how this job is so for me looking back on it I thought some anxiety and fear benefited me in a lot of ways and it opened me up to wanting to learn and then like you said once I got I mean I'm the guy who off duty I was sitting at home listening to our police radio trying to figure out how dispatchers talked how how the codes went how people were responding and once I got into the flow, it did. It came uh, very natural. So the second part of that question, now, 22 years later, assistant chief, are you just at, you know, I always talk about when you're alone at night. You close your eyes. doesn't matter who you're sleeping next to. You're alone with your thoughts. Are you like, how the hell did I get here? Or is it, or is it just clarity? It makes sense now. Yeah. Um, timing, fit opportunity that's what it boils down to at least um i think in, in a lot of things in life and i say if i look back on this career that's that's how i i feel you know i started out in the patrol world it was just kind of natural to be a field trainer mm-hmm. for me because i uh, i enjoy mentoring people i enjoy teaching i you know I, and and so from that built on other opportunities built better relationships different angles saw different mm-hmm. parts of the department um, no, I, I never left the academy think, thinking someday I'm going to be an assistant chief. Never. <laughs> I I, I, Listen, I'm your best friend, and I sit here in amazement. <laughs> I'm like, Brian's an assistant chief How in, in, the, in the fifth largest city in the country. That is He brags amazing... about you quite often, just to let oh, you know. Oh, no, I, he I, does. I do. Well, does. like I said, you talk, you talk good about your friends behind their back. Exactly. Yes, I do, because Brian has done the job, uh, you know, this is the one guy in my life. He has no malice. He has no hatred. He has no, his, his temperament is always perfect. And Robin, you know, mm-hmm. from dealing with me that I don't have those qualities. I get, <laughs> I get a little fired up and, and I'm very passionate about things. Well, but a little fired Brian, up. Brian's always done it the right way. Oh, are you going to chime in? Yeah, I do hate Michigan football. So anything, well, Michigan yes. Wolverine football, I, I Yeah, I just, so any dislike. Michigan fans out there, just click off because I, I am totally on Brian's side with that. 
Can I go back though uh, on that? No, no please do. Expand a please little bit. Do. So, you know, um, every opportunity that I got um, from becoming a field training officer to being a violent crimes detective to then promoting, and I, you know, I think um, leadership really starts to develop at that sergeant level. I, I'll say this from my current position, and I felt it at the time. The sergeant position is the hardest job. In the entire department really yeah um, you have the most responsibility you're managing 10 to 12 people you have to be out on scenes you have to manage complaints you have to write notes on people you have to be the um, things go up the chain go down the chain um, it is um, it, it, it's very very draining it can be and um, you know when you supervise 10 or 12 people it, you you inherit their lives and personnel issues are by far the most time-consuming and the most complex. Like, hey, um, if I get a complaint on someone who is rude during a traffic stop, that's easy for me to fix. Um, when I'm dealing with someone on the squad who is going through a divorce or having financial difficulty or having these interpersonal problems, uh, that, that's not solved in five minutes. That is something where I, um, I, I hope that people who are well-intended in these supervisor roles um, really understand that the, the magic of, of being a great supervisor, I think, is pouring into your people and giving of your success, yourself. Their success is your success, and they cannot be successful unless they're not giving the opportunity to do so. So we always hear the term micromanagers. We always hear you know, these, these interesting titles that are given to people who do a lot of things, but... I will tell you with 100% certainty, the successes I have had in this career is 100% because of the relationships I had supervising people, managing human capital, um, caring about them, putting, putting their stuff first. Because when you show people that you care about them, brother, there's nothing they won't do for you. No, uh, nothing. No, that's, that's exactly right. And I think you always, you know, I, I equate you to like uh, – I haven't been a cop in so long. I'm more familiar with the world of coaching and athletics now because of my son. But the best coaches, the best leaders, they understand that it's not a cookie cutter. Everybody cannot be of the same mold, of the same mindset, and they can't be cut from your same cloth. And you always seem to have a natural ability to, okay, this officer needs this type of support, whether it be, you know, kindness, a kind word, or some officers need you to get knee deep in their ass as a supervisor, right? right. I was one of those cops. I, I would rather, I would rather a supervisor show me love by telling me how much I've screwed up or what I did wrong and how I can learn from it versus somebody coddling me, but everybody's different. And you, you always seem to have that. So let me transition to, today you have seen an immense amount of changes and this is going to lead into a story that I have been aching to tell <laughs> for years. Now that you are at the highest levels of law enforcement in one of the largest cities in the country and a very large department, now we have, uh, uh, and, you don't have to speak on the topics of the media and uh, the politicians and you have the defund the police. You have um, 
just people who are more, a little more aggressive, like they're they're being taught to to fight back on traffic stops. And again, we're talking about officers with six months, a year, two, three years on. With the with law enforcement today, everybody's got a camera, everybody's got a reason to complain. How do you see law enforcement today? Because the job hasn't changed. People who commit crimes still need to go to jail. Right or wrong? 100%. Right. 100% right. People who assault officers are still not allowed to do that. And officers have a right and a duty to go home at night to their families because they are protecting communities. So with where we're at now, what is your... Because you're you're in a huge leadership position from the training aspect to the hiring aspect to who gets promoted to what this future is going to hold. And what I think, as we get older, um, you have a son who loves law enforcement. He loves law enforcement. And he will make a great cop someday, probably much to his mom and dad's chagrin, but that's why mm-hmm. he has an Uncle Jason who can, <laughs> who can, who can guide him away from that. But... I recently, this hit home hard for me, two months ago I became a grandfather. So I'm looking at a six, eight-week-old grandson. And you know what I think about? Where are we going to be when he is 26 years old? And what if he wants to be, become a cop? And you're a part of that change right now. So with everything going on right now, compared to when we started, because that's almost a moot point. It doesn't even matter what law enforcement looked like in 99, 2000, 2001. Where do you see us right now? When you look back at the time that we were on the streets and one of the big lessons that we got in the academy, and I'm sure you'll remember this and many people that are listening will remember this, they've been through it. If you act like you're on video all the time, you're gonna make the right decisions. Right, because yes. this was back yes. in 2000 when yes. you, really there were just surveillance cameras, and you know we we the, the technology wasn't there. Well, the reality is now you do have a camera on you, 40 hours a week, and when you look at people signing up to get in this profession now, and I've talked to them at the academy, and you know I tell them, um, first of all, they're the future of the organization, but secondly, uh, they are to be commended for having the heart to want to be part of the change process because we are shifting in a large way in law enforcement and it is tough profession to get into right now. I think we could all agree. Um, (laughs) I don't know if I would do it. I honestly don't know if I would do it if I was in my twenties, but it's, it's um, somewhat easier to, to get on a ship in smooth waters. Right. Well, of course. And yes. so I did that. So these these men and women coming up now, signing up and signifying they're going to do their next 25 years wearing a camera 40 hours a week, being judged, you know, every second of, of the day. Right. Um, you, you know, contextually, when you think about that and you're wearing your camera 40 hours a week, you, you can have 39 and a half great hours. You can have 39 and a half great hours that week. Right. You, you could have 30 minutes of a bad week. And do you know what's going to get highlighted? Uh-huh. The 30, the 30 minutes, minutes, right? And, and so we try and um, put this in, in perspective. Um, police officers are human beings. They're, they have good days. They have bad days. Um, but 
everybody, at least my belief system is, that is involved in this profession is here to make a difference. Right? And we talk about how cliche that sounds sometimes. Because you ask the academy class, why do, you want to, why do you want to be a cop? Why do you want to be a police officer? And they always say, because I want to make a difference in my community. Do you? Because you're going to have the opportunity, right? You are. You're yes, gonna, you are. You're going to have the opportunity. Yes, you are. And, 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 and some of the best community engagement that you'll ever get is from riding in neighborhoods and speaking to people in those neighborhoods. Not, and I, I, I'm all for community events, but, you know, sometimes the people who support you come out to those community events. The people who may not support you or... Or, or may not support you to that extent, won't go out of their way. But if you meet them on their territory, you meet them in their neighborhood, and you engage them in meaningful dialogue and say, what's, what's going on in your neighborhood? They'll tell you. And, and that's where you start making a difference. Not how many arrests you get while well, that is cool, and you can recap that, and you're like, well, I took eight felons off, off the street this month. That's great. Um, but there's tremendous pride also in solving a community problem that sometimes doesn't rise to the level of media sexiness, but it really matters to the people who live in those areas. Well, I love what you said about everything you do right now. You have to treat, treat the situation like you're on camera. However, this goes back to two things. You were one of the first people, uh, again, you had experience. I didn't, but you used to always tell me when we were brand new and young, does it pass the headline test? You knew you had that foresight. And this is back when I got the newspaper delivered to my house every day. And now everything's on the internet. But it also goes back to what we were taught in third grade. Do the right thing even when nobody's looking. So it's, it's, they both mean the same thing. Treat every situation like you're on camera, but also do the right thing no matter what the situation is. Well, I think that's the I mean, definition of an integrity is doing the right it thing, is. especially when people aren't looking, because that's how you build credibility, not only with yourself, but with your department and with the community that you're serving. That, that has to be the foundation principle, pride, honor, mm-hmm. integrity. I tell people at the academy, those aren't marketing gimmicks. Those aren't taglines. No. That's the foundation of this profession. And you will build upon that every year based on your actions and the way that you treat people and the way you respond. So pride, honor, integrity. It's right there on the academy when you enter the gates. It is something I believe very strongly in. And this brings me to the story um, that I want to tell. Or, I'm sorry, I'm going to have Brian tell. And again, I've, God, Robin, I've been waiting so long. And if, for all of you still listening to this, if you have heard nothing else in 135 episodes prior to this of what me and Darren have talked about, this is, in my opinion, the epitome of law enforcement. And I'm going to let Brian tell the majority of the story, but, and you don't have to name names. But you were a supervisor of, I think, two officers, I think a two-man unit, that were on their way to a hot call, which when you answer up for a hot call, it's an emergency call, you need to get there. Lights, siren, get there as quick as I can, get the information for the dispatcher. And on their way to that hot call, something changed. 
and lives were changed. Will you please, please share? Because this goes, this goes to the heart of why we need law enforcement officers out there who do it the right way. You're going to have to clue me in a little bit more. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. The kidnapping. Aha! Uh-huh. See, one word, I got him. Yeah. Well, he has had a long career, Jason. He has had a long career. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you, but you, I only had to say one word. You set the table. The, the, um, the kidnapping. So I was a midnight lieutenant in Mountain View Precinct, and I, I came freshly um, to the midnight shift from being a sergeant in our missing uh, and unidentified, unidentified persons unit. So... Um, child kidnappings, missing kids. Those were pretty near and dear to me. And um, I, I'd worked for five years in that unit. And so when I got to the um, midnight shift, sometimes even in the city of Phoenix at three o'clock in the morning, nothing's happening, right? There, I mean, it's, it's crickets <laughs> right. on the radio, right. checking to see if it still works. Right. And um, it was one of those nights that there was an audible alarm at, at a law firm down off of uh, Third Street in Oak. And um, I remember being very bored and just driving down that way. And uh, I remember um, that there were a couple of other officers going to that call. And one of those officers was a, one of our canine officers. I'll use his name, Mike Lynn. Right. He was the uh, canine officer at the time. And so um, we're all going to this call, and I hear... Um, Mike Lynn, I don't hear him. I see that he's pulled off on the side of the road about a block from the call. And what caught my attention to it is that he, his car is parked up over the sidewalk of, uh, on this residential street. And um, I, I get up, get out of my car, and I walk up. I'm like, hey, Mike, what's going on? He goes, I, I don't know. And I'm like, okay. And I see there's a guy, <laughs> there's a guy in handcuffs. Uh, seated on the ground there's a like bmx style bike um sitting there and on the front seat of mike's car is this little three-year-old maybe um white girl blonde hair and a purple sleeping dress and the guy in handcuffs is obviously a transient um he's hispanic he didn't speak any english and uh these these how, how did these two intersect here at three in the morning so I asked Mike, I said, what happened? He said, well, I'm driving to this call, and I see this guy on this BMX bike. He's got this girl on his handlebars, and he's driving down the street. And he goes, man, just didn't seem right. I'm like, yeah, pretty, pretty good one. So he, he turned around, and he goes up beside the guy. Um, because we all know you see weird stuff on shift well, three. Yeah. He, he rolled out the window, and he goes, hey, buddy, pull over. And the guy, of course, pretends that he doesn't hear him. And um, so that starts raising Mike's suspicion up a little bit. Uh, he ends up having to kind of take his car up over the car to block the guy's path out. And um, that's when I rolled up. And he, he said, I, I have no idea what I have, but this just doesn't look right. So um, I go over and I talk to the girl. She doesn't communicate very well. First of all, she's three. Secondly, it's three in the morning. Um, but you know that these two are not supposed to be together. Right. We're able to get a last name out of her. And by that time, a couple other officers pull up, and their address is about two blocks from where we currently are. So I drive my patrol car to that address, and I pull up in front of their house, and the mom and dad are outside the house 
running in, in circles. And, you know, the mom says, my, my daughter's missing. And I said, well, believe it or not, I think we have her. And she looked at me in disbelief and said, what? I'm like, well, let, let's get in the car. So I get her in the car. Sure enough, it, it's her daughter. And um, she thought she was in bed asleep. It, it's worse. So they were, this was, um, they were renov- They had just moved in the house six months ago. They were renovating this small, I want to say it's about a 1,100, 1,200 square foot house in central Phoenix. Yeah. They, they were, everything on the inside was under construction. So they were all sleeping in the living room. Mom and dad were on a blow-up mattress on the floor, and this, their three-year-old daughter was on the couch right above their heads. And what we come to find out later is that this guy came in through an unlocked back door, snuck into that living room, and literally picked that girl up off the couch and took her away. Without waking her parents up. Without waking her parents that is, up. That is just pure. That, that is That's scary. Scary at, yeah. at, it, at its core. That, that that can happen. Yeah. I mean, y'all like to think that when you put your kids down at night that they are in the safest place that they could possibly be. Oh, as long as they're in the same house as us. <laughs> yeah. don't, don't you do that? Oh, 100%. I, 100%. Yep. We go to bed at night. My kids are in the house, so they're safe. They're not out driving around. They're not doing whatever. This is a three-year-old girl in a nightie sleeping feet from her parents, and she was taken in silence. That is incredibly scary okay so so uh, we, we think from about the time that she was taken to the time she was found was probably about 15 minutes um <clears throat> and we kind of trace back um his direction and what we uh, had learned later is that in that time he had stopped by an uh, industrial area taken inappropriate pictures of her already put them on his cell phone um and and then took off and was encountered by officer lynn um I, I know in my heart of hearts, especially from the five years where I worked prior to this, yeah. Mike Lynn saved that girl's life that night. That could have went sideways fast. That, she, he saved her life yeah. in not, not just the physical sense. Yes, her, her life could have ended. Her heart could have stopped beating. She wouldn't exist. But he also saved her life from a life of extreme PTS, rape, um, being sodomized, being traumatized, being away from her parents for, you hear about kidnappings, three, five, ten or more years. It, it, the, the complexity of this case, all because Mike had a gut feeling. The, the, the heroism in this is astonishing, and I, I, I would talk about Mike all the time, but this goes to the heart of what I'm talking about with law enforcement and why they are needed and why these stories, has that ever gotten highlighted? Are you ever, and I know there's, you're, you're an assistant chief, you can't answer certain questions. You're never going to hear this story on CNN. You're never going to read about this story for two reasons. The officers involved were just doing their job. And number two, this happens every day. But you will hear this story, Jason, not just because you and Darren air these shows and talk about it, but that little girl's parents, 
I guarantee you. Oh, there's yeah, yeah. They, they're spreading the word. They no, talk they, about they, the heroes that saved their daughter and their family that day because they do. For sure, she could have ended up in sex trafficking. And she's going to grow you know? up to love law enforcement right. and, be, and be a part of the solution and not the problem. But it, it just these are the stories. Uh, and I've talked to Brian about this so many times personally on the phone. It, it, it truly is all the things that I have talked about the last two and a half years on this show. This is hands down my favorite story because it encompasses everything about why you wear a uniform, put a badge on your chest, carry a gun, and it just boils down to, you know what? That doesn't look right. So I'm going to check it out. Right. And I think when we sit here and talk about it, everybody says, well, I do the same thing, of course. Right? <laughs> I would do the same thing. And I, and, and no, I kind you of, wouldn't. I kind of, uh, even officers say this, but I, I mean, it's important for people to know that there was a, a, a two-officer car who drove right by that same person and a sergeant drove right by that same person yes. on their way to answer that audible alarm call because they, they, they wanted to get there to answer the call. And we're not going to fault them for no. answering an emergency. It was no. a hot call. It was an emergency call. So they were driving probably code three. Not going to fault them, but we definitely need to highlight the one person, which that one person turns into thousands and thousands of law enforcement officers that just simply see something and one thing that's never going to go away, I don't care what what happens in law enforcement, I don't care what the media says, the one thing that is never going to go away is your gut instinct is a powerful, powerful thing, and it's okay to 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 trust her once in a while. So, so he he a postscript on my please point. do. So he um, he was recognized by um, top cop award in Washington D.C. Nice. Um, about a year later, and he and his family flew. And um, he is an absolute stud, one of the most humble people I've ever yes. had the pleasure of knowing or working around. And, and he's still working. No, he retired. Oh, he did. He retired okay. about two years ago. Okay. Um, did his twenty and just left. And okay. he, he, I mean, I just uh, man, I admire that guy for so many reasons. And that that story, I mean, I'll certainly never forget. No, especially for you to be. And what I love when you tell this story, you're the lieutenant. And I know there's so many supervisors out there. You pulled up to a guy who is parked on the day of the sidewalk. And you're like, what's going on? And his response, completely honest and vulnerable. I don't know. <laughs> and, instead of, and instead of being a typical lieutenant and losing your mind, you were like, Okay, I'll, I'll help you figure it out. It's just, it, it truly is my favorite story ever. Um, all right, we got two questions that I'm going to finish up with. I got and, a question, though. Uh-oh. Yes, I want to know. I love when you interrupt. <laughs> what do you want to know, Rob? I want to know, when you put that uniform on every day, what is the most important thing to you? And we know the rule about making it home safe. But other than that, what is the most important thing in your whole career, putting on that uniform every day, what is the one thing that stands out to you? Well, I, I think that, you know, when you put on a uniform and you wear the, the patch that says Phoenix, you're, you're, you're a cop everywhere in Phoenix, and you just want to honor it. You know, like there, there's people that have lost their lives wearing this uniform. 
others who have made it out in their entire career. And so you just, you want to honor that legacy and what they have sacrificed and also be, um, you want to work in partnership with people in the community to really solve, to have meaningful engagement and solve problems. Um, Because I think, unfortunately, we hear a lot of things in the media that happens where the extremes tend to get the the attention. Um, I know from talking to people in the city, working with groups, um, everybody else is right here in the middle. Everybody else. And everybody else wants to solve those problems. And so uh, if I can do in some small way um, solve those problems and, and help this city become safer and, and raise the bar and the um, honor of this agency, then, then I feel like I've, I'm, I've done my job. All right, we're down to the two last questions I want to ask you, and these are not scripted. They are for me. I wrote them down. Uh, Brian has no idea what I'm going to ask him, uh, but he's pretty good at, on his feet. Um, a few weeks ago, Darren and I had a guest on our show, a call-in guest, and he is a commander in New Jersey, Commander Rizzo, which would you expect any other name from New Jersey? No. No, it's perfect. And he wrote a book called Kafakazi, which is a great play on the word kamikaze, and I was completely confused when I first saw it. And what he said to me, you know it takes a lot to move me. It takes a lot for something to resonate with me, especially in the world of law enforcement. He wrote a book, and he basically, his premise was, the day you sign up, the day you get accepted, the day you start the academy, you are signing up for your own demise, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, or God forbid, the ultimate sacrifice. But in listening to him talk, and I brought this up to him, and when I brought this up, he got fired up, uh, much to my surprise, because I thought I was going to irritate a lot of people. But I brought up the example of, uh, it's probably been about four years ago, and you're going to remember this. There were two NYPD officers sitting in a car, doing nothing, and somebody walked up, shot and killed both of them. Seven days later, there's the funeral, and I am, nobody loves law enforcement. Nobody loves the fact that they were a police officer more than I do. But when I saw the funeral, and I saw all these officers, from all across the country, wearing their class A's and showed up in New York and good for them. They spent money on plane tickets, whatever. But when I saw the crowd, my thought in my heart from doing this job was, you know what? That is bullshit because when you get back to your own precinct, you don't treat each other like that. It's only after the fact and then it's all for show. And Brian, you went through this with me when we were brand new officers we had we had people who uh i remember you had an incident where you know back in 2000 when we go to get our keys for our cars we obviously we didn't drive the nicest cars as new officers but you had a guy who graduated the academy one month before you yank it out of your hand and be like i'm senior to you and then you could have some supervisors, and my thought is always like, 
oh, forgive me for being born in 1972 and not 1965. It doesn't make you, you were new once too. You were a kid once too. You went through the same training that I did. So all the stuff, my, my question is, all the stuff that is going on right now with officers who are committing suicide, the divorce rate is ridiculous, alcoholism, issues on the street, uh, the retention rate is terrible, meaning a lot of officers are leaving early. It's hard to hire new officers. What gets overlooked and what I want you to address as a chief, why are we not focusing more on treating each other better and with respect? And I know you do. I, I, I know that from 20 years of watching you do it. But you know as well as I do, there are certain people who don't. And that's where it has to start. Officers have to treat each other better and with more respect. It doesn't matter what color your uniform is. You could be a sheriff's deputy in a, in a brown uniform. You could work for an outside agency and we're in a cross investigation. But we're always territorial. We're always condescending and that drives me crazy and it always has because i think that term brotherhood it should actually mean something and a lot of ways it it doesn't so from this day forward what would what would your message be and you were the lieutenant at the academy then the commander you got to influence people when they were brand new 20 year olds who were going to turn 21 to qualify with their gun all the way up to guys who were in the military 20 years, and this is a second career. You've seen it all. Life experience, age ranges. Am I wrong in saying that we need to start with ourselves? So that is a terrible way to lead up to ask me one question. I mean, can you have... <laughs> I, that's I, true, Jason. I am so, that's Jason. I'm so long-winded, and I, am, I, I guess I know I confuse you more no. than anything. So I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer it kind of kind of twofold. Okay. First of all, um, or three. First of all, I, I've always thought that you want to see someone's true character, give them power over other people, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so going back to the incident of the keys in in, in 20 years ago, 21 years ago, where the, the, he, the, that that officer and I were the same rank, uh -huh. but he had a little bit of power over me because he had graduated 30 days sooner. Uh -huh. And you see what he did with that power. Uh -huh. Right. Uh -huh. And uh, it, it's always a true test of character, I think. And, you know, some of that can be maturity. Some of that can be arrogance. You know, I, I hope that that loses people um, or people lose that at, at some point. But I, I want to talk about impacting this on the very front end, and that is culture of training. And this was something very important to me when I was a basic training lieutenant. I am not a fan of the military model of training where we, we line people up, we scream and yell, we, we punish them, and uh, we don't communicate with them, and we leave them a lot of guessing, right? This is a throwback to the way policing has been done since post-Vietnam era, essentially. Yeah, yeah. 60s, and, 70s, yeah. Yep, and, and so there's kind of this mix of this paramilitary because that's how, how we're organized. But um, I, have, I have believed that um, if we treat people coming into our organization that way by demeaning them, by 
um, dehumanizing them, um, ridiculing them, those sorts of things. This is the behavior that they're going to model when they get out on the street, right? Because this is not too far of a stretch to realize, oh, well, I got treated like crap for six months. Now I'm going to, this is how I'm going to impact. So starting in 2018, we eliminated that from the Phoenix Police Department. Nice. So we have, we have a, a much more of an adult learning environment. And this, I always love engaging people in this conversation because they will say, it's because you're soft now. That's, that's why. You're soft. <laughs> you're <and> old. People, <laughs> pe- people love to think that when they went through the academy, it was the absolute hardest time in life. Always. Right? always. It doesn't change. Doesn't it change. doesn't change. And, and so I like to say that we're actually working smarter now with how we are addressing people. One thing that was clearly absent from the time that we came on the department, most of our career, was this idea of officer wellness and communication. And I think you see a focus on that, certainly within the Phoenix Police Department. I think nationally right now, you see that places like for the Phoenix Police Department, our employee assistance unit gets more engaged with people from the academy level on as an as an example of how we can manage difficult things and really show how we care about people we we want to invest in them we want to help them through their struggles and i i think that you know from 2018 forward that you're you're going to see at least better awareness from recruits coming out of the academy in terms of expectations and how we manage and treat people, not only within the department, but within our own organization. And I know that you have seen this firsthand, Jason, when you've been out and you have taught to these academy classes. There's an incredible bonding that goes on with that group of people. Sure there is. And so the, the, the idea yeah. is, and it, it's so strong 22 years later, right? For you and I, it doesn't, the, the, yes. th- those bonds will not be broken. Yes. And so the, the, the idea that we can... Um, talk about how important that is, show by example how important it is, and then have people replicate that throughout their life and their career is uh, immeasurable in terms from an employer retention and um, just an overall feeling of, of uh, feeling like there's some gratitude towards people. Well, I think that gravitates into the last question I have for you because uh, obviously I'm biased. I love the Phoenix Police Department. They... They gave me the opportunity. I loved every second of the job. A lot of people will look at me and say whatever they want about, oh, that was terrible, or you had a, uh, your career didn't want to go the way you wanted it to. But you know that I mean this with 100% of my heart. I never had a bad day at work. I, even when I got hit at 100 miles an hour and I caught on fire, I never had a bad day at work and the Phoenix Police Department took very good care of me so with that said all these years later and with where you're at what is the Phoenix Police Department doing right now to be on the forefront of change what are we doing to hire not only more people but the right people and some of the you know I love Chief Jerry Williams your boss I think she is outstanding she hired us a lot of people don't know that. I, I, I just love telling that story. Chief Jerry Williams was the sergeant in charge of the hiring unit that hired me and Brian and gave us our chance to go into the academy. And now she's the 
chief of police and your direct supervisor. I, I love the term boss. I called yeah. when I was in homicide, I called my sergeant boss. I just love that term. Um, but please share with us because I do think Phoenix PD is on the forefront of doing the right things in the way the landscape looks right now. Yeah, so I will, I'll say that we can always improve, um, but I, will, I, would, I would put the body of work over the last three years at things that the department has done to be more transparent, to be more accountable, and to, to really show commitment to engaging people to solve problems. And we, we look at things like, you, the, these are just small examples, Jason, but, but you'll understand it. Um, and I remember um, I, you used this exact tool, the side handle baton. You remember? You used that, uh, I think it was 44th Street McDowell. Uh, on a professional rugby player, it yes. didn't work so well, but I remember so well. it. So, so that side handle baton has been around for decades in the department. And um, it is not a tool that um, is used very often. And when it, it is used, it is absolutely brutal. Everybody, everybody thinks of Rodney King, right? Of and, course. And going back. Of course. And so law enforcement has progressed. So um, a year, two years ago, the chief said, you know, we're going we're gonna to eliminate that as a force option um, because it's, it's hard to justify we, we had, I think, less than 20 people in the entire department certified in its use, and I think it was used three or four times in the last calendar year. So it's one of those things where you look at and you go, why do we even have this anymore, right? This is not a, a throwback to, oh, uh, well, that's just the way law enforcement is. We appreciate our culture and our history. No, we need to evolve. And by evolving, we, you, you don't take a, a tool away without replacing it with something else. So we're really proud of this advanced less lethal officer program that we've implemented in two precincts now where we are um we are piloting um a pepper ball gun and a 40 millimeter round which is a which is a rubber bullet non-lethal so, non-lethal non like less lethal it, it, it's less like lethal. a stun bag on steroids if that if you remember the stun bags oh, of, yeah. so oh, yeah. but but this is this is a, just one example of things that really um inflame tensions in the community when we use force. We're, we are always seeking solutions to try and mitigate that through elimination of current tools and by bringing in modern um, it, uh, tools that we can, we can use on, on the force. So uh, that's one example. Policy examples, the way that we've managed employees, there, there's so many things that we have done in the last three to five years uh, to, since Chief Williams has been here um, that have, has championed a, a lot of this. But, but having said that, we also are a very old organization. We, we did not hire from 2009 until 2015 yeah. because of the financial crisis that the city was in. Yeah. And so you look at that time frame where we did not hire. And we have people who are very senior, and we have people who are not so senior. And so those people that are senior are leaving the department. They're 25 years, 20 years, and, and they're just leaving. They're and, and so uh, the shortage for the Phoenix Police Department is not indifferent than any other organization across the country. Right. Everybody is struggling to hire. Right. Well, what we have done... Um, in the city of Phoenix is uh, we are currently offering $7,500 sign-on bonus for brand-new recruits. 
Wow. Seventy five hundred bucks. Seventy five hundred bucks just to sign on. You get twenty five hundred dollars to get hired. Okay. Twenty five hundred dollars to graduate the academy. Twenty five hundred dollars when you get off probation. That's a lot of money when you're a young college graduate. Seventy five hundred bucks. We're also given um, city city employees twenty five hundred dollar referral bonus. So if you refer someone and they get hired, and let's say you work in the water department, it's twenty five hundred dollars. Um, that's fantastic. Trying find because we know that our people are our best recruiters because they they will talk about uh, you know the wonderful place that this is to work and the opportunities afforded it. And I will not selfishly um, say this. I, I love the Phoenix Police Department because yeah. while every other department in the valley in the state is struggling to find people as well, you're not going to find one with greater opportunity. The the amount of different details, units, and work opportunities that you have in the city of Phoenix. You want to be a, a SWAT officer? Okay. You want to fly helicopters? Okay. Yeah. You want to be a canine officer? Okay. Yep. You want to work with child sex crimes? Okay. Like the, the vast opportunity there is amazing. And it's, if you take advantage of it, you could have a different career every two years. You go somewhere for two years and you're like, okay, I'm I'm done being in sex crimes, now I want to go to homicide, and I'm going to do that for two years. It is an entirely different look at, at, at the Phoenix Police Department. And so the, 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 the professional development opportunities, um, aside from the pay, I mean, starting out your first year, you can make up to $86,000, right? Uh, if you speak Spanish, wow. you get $10 an hour more. A lot better than we just, did. Just to speak Spanish and to be able to help that out. So. Um, th- there's a number of benefits that, that come with being a city employee. And, and, and really, um, if you want an opportunity to test your own metal, let's, let's sign you up and get you started. The best way to do that, join phoenixpd.com. Uh, we have two testing opportunities in the month of September, two. Um, so you go to joinphoenixpd.com. You, you can sign up for the test. Um, We'll, we'll get you through as fast as we can, and we are hiring now. Well, we're about 275 officers down today. Let's you know, go. You know, Jason, you know my dream that I always wanted to be a cop, and it's a little too late for me to do that. But if I could go back in time, I would definitely want to work under his leadership. It, in a heartbeat. I, yeah. Brian, I can't thank you enough. Um, we're going to take a break and come back. I've got a special close for the upcoming 9-11 uh, but seriously, Brian, thank you, Chief Chapman. Uh, thank you very much for taking your time. I think this was uh, very impactful for all of our listeners. How's that feel to call your friend the chief? Uh, you know what? <laughs> I, uh, I love it. He I'm, can just I, keep saying he loves it. So. He loves it. I, yeah, I, I, I'm 50-50 <laughs> on it. So we will be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. <laughs> We'll be back right after this. OfficerPrivacy.com is offering a special deal for listeners of this podcast. This is a great deal. Go to OfficerPrivacy.com forward slash BB. Their team of current and retired law enforcement officers will remove your information from the top three sites that are showing your home address, phone number, and more. Sign up at OfficerPrivacy.com forward slash BB. You can also follow the link on our show notes. During these challenging days, we not only need to remember our many fallen heroes for their ultimate sacrifice, but also honor them so their families know we've not forgotten. And that's what the Arizona Fallen Hero Memorial Writers Organization is all about. 
Each year, the nonprofit organizes three memorial rides among the beautiful backdrop of North, South, and Central Arizona, with the proceeds going to the 100 Club of Arizona. Learn more about these fun rides and how you can honor all of Arizona's fallen heroes at ArizonaFallenHeroesMemorialRiders.org. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back to Badge Boys, everybody. Uh, wow, that was... That was fun. That was fun. It, it went exactly how I thought it would. I can't thank uh, Brian enough for taking time out of his day. And I want to... For the people who have listened... The few people out there, and when I say few, probably less than the amount of fingers I have who have read my book, they understand who Brian is. Uh, Brian and I were partners on the same squad and happened to not be riding together on the Monday, March 26th of 01, that I had my accident. However, Brian was the one who identified me at the hospital. Outside of the hospital staff, he's the one who was in the emergency room. Then he's the one who had to go wake my wife up, knock on her door, change her life forever. And he has been there through so many things. Then you fast forward to when I was in homicide and he was a night detective. We worked together on uh, when Eric White and Jason Wolf were murdered in Phoenix. We had to go make the notification to the suspect's family. It was an, it was an unbelievable night, what, what we went through. I, I had a death call one time of a father and son who died in a fire. And I was sent to take care of this alone. And I called Brian, woke him up. I said, I need you to come to work and help me. And he did. When David Uribe was murdered, which a lot of people know was kind of the other defining moment in my career that started to make me think about retiring it took another year but i woke brian up again because he worked night shift said you got to come to work and it was me and him throughout the day uh doing what we needed to do we we have shared so many different experiences uh professionally and personally and when i say he's my best friend i mean it He's your guardian it, angel, well, dude. It, it, it's that that's not even the right term to say he's my best friend and i'm looking forward to um his, he absolutely has the greatest family uh, that I've ever been fortunate enough to know. I got to spend the entire summer with his uh, awesome brother, the Ohio State Trooper. I won't tell you his rank, but it's, it's pretty high. Um, out on the Lake Erie, I got to live with his mom and dad. His dad, you know, my dad died four and a half years ago. The last person with my dad before he died, the last person to hold my dad's hand and talk to him was Chief Brian Chapman. Dude, don't bring me to tears. No, I'm saying this. People don't understand the value of friendship, and right. it was formed in the academy. And in a short six weeks, Brian and I will be back on Lake Erie, uh, and he's probably going to laugh at me trying to bait a hook with my screwed up hands. Uh, <laughs> and he will offer no help, Robin. Let, let's make this clear. He will be of no... You're a grown he, man, Jason. He, <laughs> no. I, yeah, I'm a grown man with five fingers and uh, limited eyesight. And I, I guarantee you I will get no help uh, from him. So it's, it's pretty funny. You and survived I'm, a car exploding. I'm you looking, can do damn near anything, I'm looking, dude. 
he calls it a minor fender bender. <laughs> well, you joke about it all he the time. Call, like he that calls too. it a minor fender bender. I get no break. <laughs> um, so it is September 8th. We won't be back on air for a week, which means September 11th will pass. And it goes without saying that uh, there is no need to go into details and choose one person for a heroic headline or an inspirational story. It's It's been 20 years since 9-11 happened. And for those of us who were alive at the time, we all remember exactly where we were. For me, I was in the hospital. I was blind. On September 10th of 2001, my grandmother died while I was in the longest surgery of my ordeal, 14 hours. And I woke up September 11th. Again, I'm blind. All I'm doing is listening to the news. I couldn't fully grasp the intensity of this. But I remember when the buildings collapsed. I remember listening to it. I remember for me, all I thought about was, God, there's so many firefighters running up those stairs right now. And firefighters saved my life. You know, everybody knows how much I love firefighters. Obviously, uh, quite a few NYPD officers, a lot of Port Authority police officers, and a ton of civilians that we don't always talk about. The the entire Cantor Fitzgerald organization, all the people working on it in Windows of the World. And we swore, you know, 20 years later, the 20-year thing is a big deal as far as a calendar and a date. But I remember back then with how the world is right now, how, how screwed up we are with what everything that just happened with Afghanistan and everything that is going on with uh, the hatred for police officers and, and things like that. I still remember the media. Uh, and again, I can't see pictures, but I could hear. And I remember everybody, the common theme was we will never forget. And a lot of people and have. And unfortunately, it feels like that, and I don't want to feel like that. So I'm going to choose, because your attitude's a choice, I'm going to choose not to feel like that. I'm not going to forget. I saw a great picture yesterday. I posted on my Instagram story. And there are eight NYFD firefighters. Eight whose parents were killed on 9-11 as firefighters. And now they are firefighters carrying on that legacy that is incredibly beautiful. To all the service members that did what they could, from guys like that you hear about, like Pat Tillman, gave up millions of dollars, gave up an NFL career because he felt that calling to do something, and then he ends up dying. But Pat, Pat Tillman is one of hundreds, if not thousands, who gave up their comfortable lives to go serve our country something bigger than themselves and to honor what happened on September 11th. And I don't understand, Robin, the people who have forgotten because I was born in 1972. Prior to 9-11, I think you could argue that the biggest event that ever happened for America was Pearl Harbor. And we didn't call it a terrorist attack. We called it war. And that's mm -hmm. what got us into World War II. But even at my young age, I knew what Pearl Harbor meant. I knew the importance of, of the legacy of it. And I knew people who had been involved from my dad to my grandfather. 
serving in the military and being in the war, and we did things the right way to take care of that. I mean, for, for God's sakes, we Japan attacked us at Pearl Harbor. We dropped two nuclear bombs on them. And I remember in 1993, I was in Japan. And the kindness and the camaraderie was not lost on me. I'm like, it was less than 50 years ago that we dropped nuclear bombs on you guys because of what you did at Pearl Harbor. And now we are allies and friends and we love each other. How in the world have we gone from 9-11 to where we're at today? But again, I'm going to choose not to do that. Please, please, no matter where you're at, what you're doing, if you were alive on September 11, 2001, take a minute to think about where you were and how you felt. Not how you feel today, how you felt that day, because that should never change. And the commitment that I made, being blind, and then with my young kids, that I was going to spend every opportunity watching those videos, listening to those sights and sounds, and I have continued to do that, and I will do that on September 11th and honor everybody. So for everybody out there who was affected by that, who knows a first responder, loves a first responder, is a first responder, and for the people who suffer in silence that lost so much that day as it continues to get played on the news, as, as it continues to get talked about in some ways with deep gratitude and respect and heroism and in other regards it gets passed over and disrespected can i say something yeah of course always this girl lost her dad when she was 14 and he was one of the firefighters who was off duty and received a phone call and went he went up into the towers and helped as many people as he could and he never came home she was really, it was hard for her because it's hard to grow up without a dad when you're 14. She needed yeah. her dad. But she said that every year she has to witness her father being murdered uh -huh. every year with all the stuff. But she's so very proud of him uh -huh. because of everything he did that day and all the people that he saved. But she said, I still live with that every single year because I have to watch my father dying all over again. And it's hard for me and even now with her being 24, you know, or all these years later, 20 years later in her 30s, she still has a hard time with that. And that's what we have to remember that so many people were affected. And of course, they continue to be affected because we know several people who worked at Ground Zero that yes, we have been inflicted with the health problems. Plus, yes. we have to think about the traumatic things they go through, finding body parts and dealing with what they have. Not only are they just dealing with the loss of their own people yeah. that they work with, but now they're finding body parts. And that's something that the trauma that you guys face as first responders and just human beings that were there, that is something you can't forget. And we shouldn't ever forget. I've met so many first responders and had so many beautiful conversations with them and seeing how that 20 years, 18, 20 years still weighs so heavy on them. And we can't forget that. Well, no, we can't forget that. I remember uh, a year afterwards, well, it wasn't even a year. It was, I think, the spring of 2002. Uh, I was looking for a doctor to help me with my surgeries. And Brian and my dad went with me, and we went to New York. 
and we were fortunate enough. I mean, I, again, I'm, I was so sick and, and frail and really couldn't see. Scared to get on the subway, scared to go out in public. I'm wearing a hoodie because of my appearance. It was a whole different world. And uh, we went to some fire stations, and it was incredibly powerful. You'd walk into this fire station, and all the trucks were brand new. And there was all kinds of pictures on the wall, and you'd ask the firefighters, like, wow, you guys have some nice trucks. Well, that's because all those guys died on 9-11, and the trucks were crushed when the buildings came down. And then uh, we had a reporter who was following me and detailing my story. And I didn't know it until that day. Her name's Judy Villa. She was a great reporter for the Arizona Republic. Wrote a lot of stories on me. She had gone to 9-11 right after it happened and never said anything. Never, she was just incredible. Well, when we all went together, me and Brian, my dad, uh, and Judy, we found her sitting all by herself in tears at Ground Zero when it was still a mess. I mean, you still had the posters of the people who were missing or the people who, who were loved. It was still a complete disaster area. I'm talking eight months later. And that was such a powerful moment to me to see how she was affected. Uh, and I've just, I've never forgotten these things. And I hope that all of you don't forget. And for you new first responders out there, I pray to God there will be a, never be another 9-11. But you cannot forget that there was a 9-11. You cannot forget what you can be called to do sometimes. And every single one of those people did it without regard for their own safety or their own families at home. They did it for other people. And it's just a great week to try to come back together as a country. And yes, the cynical side of me says we won't because we won't. We have to listen to CNN and all the, uh, I promise you I wouldn't cuss during this episode, so I won't. But uh, it really is an opportunity. And Brian said it earlier, you know, when he's out there in the community and when he's talking to people, most people are supportive and they are in the middle and they want to be Americans and they want to love this country and they want to be supportive. So let's take the opportunity this week. Please remember where you were. Remember all the people who did something that day because they deserve it. And not just because it's the 20th anniversary on the calendar. It has to mean something. It can never be forgotten. So God bless all of you. Please be safe. I hope all of you officers out there paid very close attention to Thanks, Police Assistant Chief Brian Chapman. He is absolutely the best of the best and what everybody should strive to be in law enforcement. I couldn't be more proud of him, uh, not only as a Phoenix police officer, but as my best friend. I thank him for today. And uh, Robin, thank you. Darren, we miss you. I hope you're listening tonight. And we will see you all next week. Be safe. Batch Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys, heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Batch Boys.